As much as it sounds like there's always fights, independents need the big guys, and the big guys need the independents. I mean, it's important. You can't lose one piece of that infrastructure and expect to exist profitably. Hello and welcome to the Box Office Podcast. This is Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the global cinema market. I am here with uh, Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios. Later in the episode, in our feature segment, we will be joined by Joel Davis of Premier Cinemas, Byron Berkeley of the ICA, and Bill Campbell also of the Independent Cinema Alliance, to discuss the a little, we're going a little bit back into the history of exhibition here, Russ, which you know I love, to talk about the founding of the Cinema Buying Group, uh, which is now the Cinema Buying Alliance, which CBG, CBA, a lot of acronyms, but essentially it was something that was put into place that helped independent movie theaters stay alive. Actually, uh, that Cinema Buying Group, kind of the seed of it, uh, came from the Geneva Convention, which is taking place this week in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Uh, we are recording it the day before it starts, and if you're listening to it on Thursday, uh, you are listening to it on the final day of the show. Russ, in terms of box office, things last weekend went pretty much as expected. Don't Worry Darling coming in at the top of the chart with 19.2 million. This film looks the sort to be pretty front-loaded. We have a B-minus cinema score from this opening weekend. You saw the film. I, I, you're not a fan. What, what are your thoughts on, <laughs> on it as a film? And it is something that maybe has some kind of word-of-mouth potential. First off, that B-minus cinema score is interesting because, for instance, Barbarian, which is a movie that audiences seem to really like got a lower cinema score than that it got a, a c or a c what? plus which kind of surprised me yeah barbarian cinema score was low and i i literally don't think i've heard from anyone who saw barbarian and didn't like it it was just like church so, groups accidentally go to barbarian's opening weekend and i don't know, <laughs> I know. and i haven't seen it so i mean i i can't speak personally as to barbarian but i just anecdotally word of mouth on that movie is extremely good don't worry darling the b minus cinema score honestly is better having seen the movie it's a better cinema score than i would have expected than you would have given it because <laughs> I oh, I would have given it way lower. I found Don't Worry Darling to be too long. It has a lot of scenes that just spin their wheels, don't really go anywhere. And then there is, as the full scope of the story is revealed, I found it unsatisfying and unconvincing. 19.3 domestic take is relatively solid. You know, we've talked about this on, in previous episodes, and I do wonder about the degree to which all of the conversation about Don't Worry Darling how far is that permeating into any consciousness of someone who is not perpetually online? Again, we're into unsupportable anecdotal conversations. And so I don't know, but clearly I think Harry Styles fans saw the movie. That's good for the movie. That's why he's in it. And that probably helped a lot. Beyond that, yeah, I'm curious to see the hold and to see if uh, how much word of mouth actually helps the movie. In third place, I, I wanted to ask you about some statistics we got on this one, Russ. It is the 2022 re-release of Avatar coming in third place, 10 million across a pretty modest 1,800 screens. Um, you can read the entire breakdown of its opening weekend performance or 
not opening, but you know what I mean, on boxofficepro.com. The long and the short of it is that it debuted better than some re-releases, worse, worse than some other re-releases, kind of, you know, a little bit middle of the pack in, in that regard. Domestically, 93% of tickets sold for this Avatar re-release were in 3D. I mean, certainly there's no question that if you're going to see Avatar, the reason to see it is 3D. So going to see Avatar in 2D is not pointless exactly, but I think certainly missing the point of Avatar. Overseas, 75% of uh, of that weekend's gross came from premium formats, whether that's 3D, IMAX, some sort of immersive seating. So... Internationally, not so geared heavily towards the 3D. Another little tidbit we got here, and and Russ, I want to get your take on it. Uh, Demographically, in North America for this opening weekend re-release of Avatar, uh, the audience was 56% male and 57% ages 25 plus. Is that something to be concerned about or, or that, you know, this clearly the audience for this skewed older. I mean, people who are, you know, young today, were they even alive when Avatar came out the first time? I mean, I don't know math. I, fe- I think yeah. 1996 was just like two or three years ago. Yeah. You know, Avatar is a catalog title. Put it in a perspective, I am old. So let's say that this movie came out when I, that this re-release took place when I was in high school, which would have been 1988. That means it would be like, am I going to rush to see the re-release of a movie from 1975? Probably not. Unless it's Jaws. I think everybody wants Avatar to be in the Jaws category. And culturally, I don't think it is. Which isn't to say it can't be. Uh, it briefly was in that category. But, you know, it's been it's been 13 years. It's Avatar is not in the public consciousness in the way that it was when it mm-hmm. came out. It enjoyed a spectacular year or a couple of years. You know, it's weird because and there's been years of discussion about this that, that – Purely by numbers, Avatar is the biggest movie ever globally. Globally, it certainly did well this weekend. It, came, it made about $30 million worldwide. That's great. For a re-release, that's spectacular. But culturally, Avatar isn't where you would expect a movie to be if it sits on top of that global box office chart. It's weird. So what does that mean for The Way of Water? Disney has a lot of marketing to do, long and short of it. In years past, they would have really already been deep into a a big marketing campaign. But since COVID, the timelines of marketing campaigns have changed drastically. You know, there is an Avatar trailer. There have been some events. and, And by modern standards, that actually is a big an early PR campaign, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but really post COVID, we see big campaigns really, truly ramping up at most 90 days out, which is where we're getting to right now. And they really kick into gear like six weeks out. So, you know, this Avatar re-release is the beginning of the true promotional campaign for the way of water. And that's probably the best way to look at it. So I'd be really curious to see if The Way of Water is the success that Disney wants and needs it to be. Would a different demographic breakdown go to see a re-release of the original? Uh, Probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. But right now, I think it's playing primarily to audiences who saw it the first time, which which in and itself is interesting. But it's a reminder. It's like, hey, this thing exists. Maybe you enjoyed it. Uh, maybe you want to see it again, by the way, number two is coming a couple of months. You don't have long to wait. 
so yeah, I think the best way to look at this re-release is as a lucrative promotional effort for the sequel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I think along with everybody else, I'm really curious to see how things shake out in December. Over the over the weekend, I, I wouldn't say I fully watched it. It was kind of on in the background, you know, while I was doing some cleaning, but uh, Jurassic World Dominion, it kind of put me in that mindset of franchises where the first one was just absolutely killer. They build a franchise around it and then all the other movies suck. And I mean that creatively, not in terms of box office, and it's just my own opinion. I mean, Jaws. Jaws is that. I don't think you were there, but Daniel and I maybe had a conversation along these lines before Dominion came out, where my point was that I think Jurassic, the Jurassic series overall represents the longest-running movie series that has only one movie that people genuinely like. Each of those, each of the sequels has its fans, probably including Dominion, and I get it, that's fine. But Jurassic Park and the oversized success of Jurassic Park is the reason that there are still new Jurassic movies being made. And it's very easy to be like, hey, you liked this thing because it was good. There was a reason to like it. So we're going to make another one. Russ, before we get to our feature segment here, let's go over what movies we have coming out this weekend. We have from Universal Bros., um, which is kind of being touted as the first major studio same-sex rom-com to be released theatrically. That's a, that's a long phrase to put on the poster, but it, it looks good to me. It's by Nicholas Stoller, who uh, directed the first of the newest set of, uh, of Muppet movies. He directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is a film I really enjoy. The Neighbors movies. I mean, yeah. earlier this year, we had The Lost City. You know, rom-com really pulled in a lot of business in a time when there really wasn't a lot of stuff coming out open to 30 million. I don't, we certainly can't expect that here, I would say, just because neither Sandra Bullock nor Jane Tatum are in it. You don't have that star power. I'm curious to see where Bros goes. I mean, my understanding, uh, it played either Venice or TIFF or both, and it seemed to, you know, it was well received at those festivals. Uh, It's a gay rom-com with Billy Eichner, who, you know, if you've seen Billy on the street, you, you understand his slightly manic, somewhat confrontational, but ultimately winning personality on screen. Mm-hmm. But Eichner's main venue has been television. Mm-hmm. So this represents his first kind of like leading man role. And that's really cool to see because I, I like Billy Eichner. I think he's funny. And what I've seen of this movie also looks funny. It looks like a pretty straightforward rom-com, but like that's great. Rom-coms when they're good, are a lot of fun. They don't need to be mold-breaking. They can just, they could be a good rom-com. That's enough. They don't need to be edgy. You can just, if, if yeah. it was good enough for Lubitsch, it's good enough for you. Yeah, that's a, I, I'm sure they say that in, in pitch meetings all the time. I, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's common Hollywood discourse. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if Bros is a funny, good rom-com, great. I think we'll see people respond to it. Is it going to do that 30 million that you mentioned? No. Probably not. If people want another, you know, nice, funny, happy movie uh, to see over the weekend, they might think of going to see Paramount Smile. They probably shouldn't. Uh, that's a horror film about a smile that is it's contagious, it's cursed, it's I don't know what, but the movie seems to have, uh, have a shine on it at this point. It's being released by Paramount, which I, I believe Sean phrased it really well last week when he said they've basically had the Midas touch this year. So that's on their side. And Russ, it showed at Fantastic Fest, which is going on right now, right? Yeah. So Fantastic Fest is the uh, genre-oriented film festival that has long 
been put on in sort of cooperation with the Alamo Draft House. It's a festival that uh, you know, it gets some of the same material that you would see in like the midnight program at TIFF, but then it gets a lot of weirder movies. It's kind of like a niche tastemaker. It like is. Like it's, 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 it's an influential place for a lot of horror films to yeah, stream. Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, a variety of things have made sort of surprise debuts there. Like I think Glass, the Shyamalan movie, was a surprise screening. Crimson Peak screened there a few years ago. Uh, you know, there are some other things that were that were really big that showed up at, at Fantastic Fest. Uh, Smile was not a secret screening this this year. It was a known plan thing, uh, but I think it was the opening opening night movie. It did well. People seem to respond to it. Uh, I know that Paramount sent out a lot of last minute invites to a junket that took place over this past weekend. Yeah, they did it. They, they planned a junket. Like they planned a junket, a virtual in junket like last hours. minute, which it, well, yeah. not so great. Yeah. Well, not, that's not great for the journalists covering it, but it says good things about the movie, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how far out that junket was planned. Maybe it was originally planned to be small and they expanded it. I, but I have talked to a lot of people who got last minute invites to a thing, which suggests to me that Paramount maybe realized, oh, this is playing better than we expected it to. So let's do a push. Smile looks very much in the vein of The Ring movies like that and the the marketing that has pushed it along those lines so if that is indeed what the movie is then we might see a better cinema score than we saw out of barbarian which would be good for smile uh, so yeah we'll see what happens well russ thanks as always uh for joining us especially given the fact that it is your birthday today when we're recording this and you should not be working at all i am a firm believer in in being as lazy as possible on your birthday so i commend your commitment to to your job and to being a responsible human Thank being you. I, I don't know about responsible but i'm here <laughs> I am a human being, yes. As far as I know. Yes, and I'm 25, if you can imagine it. (laughs) Well, 25, finally. You don't look a day over 26. Thank you. That's nice. Thank you, Russ. And now we move on to our feature segment. Box Office Pro Editorial Director Daniel Luria and I travel back in time a little bit to 2008-2009. Conversion to digital projection is looking like more and more of an absolute necessity for any cinema that wants to stay in business, especially with the upcoming release of this little film called Avatar. Uh, It was a huge turning point for the industry as a whole, but we're looking specifically today at North American independent cinemas, which face the very real threat of going under if they were unable to make this conversion to digital technology happen. Part of the solution to that quandary was born as the Cinema Buying Group, now known as the Cinema Buying Alliance, part of the Independent Cinema Alliance. And we have three people from the ICA here today to speak with us about the Cinema Buying Group, the Cinema Buying Alliance, and the help it and the ICA do uh, for independent exhibitors. Joining us today are ICA Chairman Bill Campbell, founding president Byron Berkeley and ICA director Joel Davis, also the winner of the Larry D. Hansen Award at this year's Geneva Convention. Uh, Bill, maybe you can start us off here by just kind of giving us a macro view of what the Cinema Buying Group is and how it got started. To get started, I guess, you know, it must have been around 1999 um, in the halls of actually the Geneva Convention. Byron and, and Larry Hansen and, you know, a lot of independent exhibitors were sitting there trying to figure out how we can get 
pricing like the big guys. I mean, that's what's really important to small guys is, is to, to find better margins because that was really a hard thing. Not film rental, but all the other bulbs and, and toiletries and, you know, everything that you use that, that are on your bottom line that if you could cut some costs, you know, we could manage a little bit better. So from that came the CVG, the Cinema Buying Group. We tried to get it organized. You know, it, the problem was is every independent exhibitor is kind of set in his ways and it was a hard sell. It was, we'd get a few people, we talked to a few vendors, but, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. You know, you got to have for sure numbers before the distributors will start working with you, not distributors, the, uh, the vendors. And we had a little traction, a little success, but it just never really, really took off until 2008 or so when digital cinema started coming on. Mm. Because what happened there is that became such a, a major threat to our existence as independents because the big three had started working on the BPF programs. I mean, well, actually the big four because... Carmike back then were the, was the first with their big BPF deal with Christie Digital and all those and, and Access IT, I think is what they were back then. And then the big three were working on theirs. And, you know, I was going to leave the little guys out. With the help of Wayne Anderson, we started kind of touting the idea that we need to have these BPF programs. And NATO actually saw how important that was for the whole industry to keep independence alive because... You know, as much as, as much as it sounds like there's always fights, independents need the big guys. And the big guys need the independents. I mean, it's, it's important. You can't lose one piece of that infrastructure and expect to, to exist profitably, I would say. So NATO kind of, NATO took the CVG under wing and formed a not-for-profit for it inside of NATO where we started working on the VPFs. You know, we had 7,000 screens of interest um, back then. So it was it was huge. It was it was important. We didn't get all 7,000 signed, but we at least pushed forward the agenda of VPFs for independence. And there were, you know, three or four different deals in the independence, once again, herding cats. We couldn't get everybody, force them to do our deal, but they, at least we, we opened it up for the industry. For a podcast episode closer to the Geneva Convention with that connection we have here. For some of our podcast listeners that might not be in the industry that are interested in, in, in exhibition, I was wondering if you guys could go over what the virtual print fee model is and, and, and was like and, and what how it was built in a way that, let's say, a, a casual observer of the industry could understand. In the film days, the studios would strike prints. So anywhere between back then it was probably, you know, for a wide release, two to 3,500 prints at a cost that we never really quite knew, but in the thousands of dollars, one to two thousand dollars. The conversion to digital cinema was going to cost theaters upwards of a hundred thousand dollars per screen. Okay. And that's a really big nut for us to take on with no help. And to be honest, not a lot of increased butts and seats. You know, the, the picture will be better. There are some advantages for theaters who were running off of the national break when they would take a print from a large market and move it down to us chances of it being scratched and sound not hearing you know clicks and pops and that type of thing those would go away because the print would be as pristine as it was from the first day to all the way through because it's a digital file 
but there was not a lot of advantage to us making more money. But the studios, the cost to them, I mean, those thousands of dollar prints and the fact that they didn't have to ship them around the country and, and a lot of that, they were, they were going to save tons and tons of money. So the idea was to find a way to use some of that savings in their print fees to help us pay for the digital conversion. And so the idea was to use a virtual print fee. So instead of an actual hard number or a hard, hard print that you're buying, you're, you're paying for the file to be made, but you're also, you're using that money to help pay the exhibitor part of that fee that they would have had to pay to help them pay for the, the conversion to the process. It was a, uh, it was a good idea. I mean, you're asking somebody to help pay for things, so things get contentious through that, but it seemed to go well. There was always that promise that, you know, everybody would then be able to get movies easily because, um, it's just a file that gets transferred instead of this hard print that, that costs so much money. And so some of the uh, the business deals we had to work through is how the studios, it was easy for them to do the large circuits and the large towns because they know they're going to make, you know, so much money off that. The marginal towns got a little harder, and, and that's that cost of that print fee for the studios was more challenging. So we had to come through some business models, and that was the big where the, the CBG stepped in and helped. What didn't happen, unfortunately, when this transition occurred, the availability of content to theaters did not really change significantly. That had been somewhat implied in the initial discussions, and it was hoped by, particularly by smaller exhibitors, that when we went through this transition, we would find availability to have improved considerably, and we didn't see that. So that was one of the, one disappointment. In 2008, 2009, you're seeing the major circuits go to digital, that if you were digital, by the time the first Avatar came out, it gave you a certain advantage with that digital 3D ticket price. How much of an existential threat was the conversion to digital for you guys? And how did the CVG help you get over that hump? I think a lot of smaller theaters that were not financially able to, to address this, all the complications that went along with getting into the digital program, which was financing, getting going out and getting equipment financed, which was a big problem. A lot of smaller theaters couldn't qualify for the type of financing that was necessary. So that became a real threat and a real concern to a lot of smaller theaters. 2008, though, things tightened up for financing, right? I mean, that was the big crash. And the original, the original um, BPF programs consisted of the integrator, Synodyme, getting money and then deciding if that theater could support their business model. One thing we did is like, look, we will we'll take the risk and we'll go out and get that money. So that BPF money was paying off our notes that we went out and got so that Synodyne didn't have to take the risk and, and make a choice where the town may be too small for, for a digital conversion in their eyes where we knew it would happen and we could find a way because we're working with our local banks. So that was that was a very big change in the VPF program that we drove through. So Joel, and Joel, from your perspective, uh, you're at Premier at the time. You're coming from a perspective where when you first start with Premier, you're working second run. You're working with pranks that are coming in beat up. You're trying to do your best to offer a first-run experience, a top-class experience. Once digital comes along, 2008, 2009, 
how much of a challenge was that for Premier and how did you guys work with the CBG to get through that challenge? Uh, so we come from a little bit different perspective. We entered the CBG later uh, in the game. The reason why we joined the CBG. So I had cut a deal with a little company called Real D because there was a movie coming out with a bunch of blue guys <laughs> and we really needed that type of technology, right? So that we could enhance our experience for our audiences. And that was a big push, right? So I had negotiated a contract with Real D and I will tell you, not the very best of contracts at that point in time because they were really the only 3D technology company in the market. So I'm calling around and I called one of our companies that we use that we buy equipment from. And I said, hey, um, you know, I really need to buy some of this real D equipment. You know, can I just buy it instead of lease it and work with their program? And he says, no, can't do. But, you know, if you join the CBG, they have a, a really great contract with real D. So then I contacted uh, the uh, CBG. I joined. I got the contract, confidential contract, read through it, could not believe what I had read, and said, okay, great, I am going to uh, join the CBG, which I had already done, called Real D on the phone, said, hey, I'm a CBG member, and they had to refund me back all the money that I had spent on Real D equipment, <laughs> and, which was amazing. Now I'm a CBG member, and after that, I was sold into their program. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is you know, the best thing since sliced bread, okay? So that's, that's kind of where we came in and from our standpoint. So that's how, you know, we became a CBG member. And at that point, I guess, you know, we became a lifelong member and uniting together and trying to create value in our industry. And, and that's why we always bow when we say Wayne Anderson's name. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. so it's, it's around this time, it's, it's 2008, 2009, there's a, a big economic downturn, a seismic change in the industry where it's very clear if you're, to most people, if you don't convert to digital, then you're not going to be around indefinitely. And you have an avatar movie coming out where you need 3D. Looking back, uh, in, now the CBG has come the CBA 2022. Again, economy, so great. We have an Avatar movie coming out. What is the CBA now, and how does it compare to the CBG as it started? Well, so so little history on why the CBA, CBA is outside of NATO now, um, real quick. As is, is, is Byron had mentioned, you know, we were still having some issues with the studios, the, the availability and those types of things, and, and we were trying to work with that inside of NATO. But because NATO's market position of representing 90-some percent of the the whole market, we as a small independent group within there could not do that. So NATO recommended that we go find a way to do that ourselves. And they offered to let us take the CBG with us to help finance part of that. So that's why NATO's no longer involved in in this the CBG. We, we renamed it the CBA, Cinema Buying Alliance, to go with our independent Cinema Alliance. Um, and, and so it's all owned now. And, and so, so we're c currently, you know, trying to revamp. And we, we don't have, as you say, those major projects like a VPF program. So we're trying to find the, the big line items on our, our balance sheets that, that'll make a difference again. So, so Joel's taken um, charge of this. And, you know, as he just mentioned, he's, he's bought into the program. So he really knows how important it could be and what, what difference it can make to, to independent exhibitors. I'm really the team leader 
<laughs> there uh, at the Cinema Alliance for the Marketplace. And uh, my team, uh, got a great volunteer team that's come in and uh, took their time. And we actually went over and we identified what we believe that exhibitors are looking for most in a buying program. Of course, concessions, you know, seems to be like the number one thing, you know, the items that people buy the most, whether it be the popcorn bags and the tubs and popcorn and oil. And then the second thing would be equipment. And then you break equipment down into two categories. One would be projection equipment, and then the other one would be concession equipment. And then, of course, the last thing that we kind of hit on, so that gives me like my four categories, would be insurance. We're looking at each one of those line items individually and handling them separately. I'm laying that track now and trying to, to build that train station so that people in the future have that direction on which way to go. You know, we have went in and we've actually got a, a GPO company, which is a group purchasing organization, and hired them to come in to help us because they have a larger team of individuals, and, and they're not volunteers. Um, basically, they're, they're paid to do this job. And they have 10 full-time people that are working behind the scenes with us just to make sure that, this vision that we put together moves forward. And so, you know, yeah, that track's getting laid and, you know, that train station's getting built and pretty soon that the train's going to be leaving the station. So in the meantime, what we've done, we've created a lot of bonus programs for our uh, members that are on our website, uh, you know, and there, there are a lot of things that are already there that are legacy programs that Wayne and uh, Bill and Byron had already put in place, but we just kind of added on to those programs as well. And then now we're, we're building out and, you know, the program, the way that it's going to be designed is that members will be buying as one entity. And of course, being able to buy in bulk, and save money, you know, that is really, you know, the end thing that we're trying to do is save our members money with, with this program. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of my vision. And, you know, we're, we're laying that track, you know, we're, we're investing, of course, into, um, into data at the moment and, you know, collecting that data and being able to push that out for the future. That's going to be the key. It goes back a long, long time to, the days when Larry Hansen would actually hold court, if you will, late at night in a bar wherever NATO was having its one of its meetings. And Larry would hold court in the bar, and he would be surrounded by people like Bill and myself and a lot of others. And we would discuss all of the issues of the industry and all of the problems that we were confronted with. And then we would try to salute, you know, solve them. So I think that's really where it started back then in a, in a bar somewhere, somewhere where NATO was having a meeting someplace. Is so, somebody saying something ought to be done, right? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I guess I, I would add that, that not just the, the buying program, but the studio advocacy and working through marketing and Education to independent members is what the ICA is all about. It's easy to join. We have a, uh, actually we're in our, our 
membership drive right now. If you go to cinemalliance.org, you can jump in and renew if you haven't, or if you're a couple of years out, or you can become a new member. So cinemalliance.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Box Office Podcast, and thank you to all of this week's co-hosts and guests, including Russ Fischel, Daniel Luria, Bill Campbell, Byron Berkeley, and Joel Davis. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. We release a new episode every Thursday, so hopefully we'll see you again next week. <laughs>